Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files, uh, uh, to yet another great edition. It's Tuesday, and uh, we are going to basically uh, – uh, first of all, I want to say my co-host, Coco Konski, had a close friend of hers uh, uh, commit suicide, uh, and she's at this point. She's with uh, other friends who knew this individual, so they're all kind of huddling together, and she will not be able to make it to tonight's show. Uh, I am going to start off with, uh, you know, we're going to talk about the following things. We're going to talk about uh, does censorship interfere with scientific discussion. We're going to go into that. We're going to talk about uh, China, the origin of of the coronavirus, and what it means if indeed, as it appears to be, the China laboratory was the originator. We're also going to discuss the virus. And we're going to, and, and plus a few other things. So Dr. Larry will be joining us uh, shortly. Uh, so, but in the meantime, I'm going to start off with Wimbledon. I'm going to count to three here. One, two, three, Wimbledon. Now, here's the interesting thing with Wimbledon is this. You know, Djokovic won Wimbledon. Here's the aspect. Now, in tennis, in tennis, the great, the greatest is often judged, or greatness is judged by majors. There are four majors: the French, the Australian, the U.S., and Wimbledon, or the British, or what they say, the Open. And you have three gentlemen who are now at 20 majors: Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and no big joke of it. Question is going to come because here's what we're seeing unfolding in front of us. We're literally seeing on the court the greatest of all times actually being decided. Because in tennis, it's all about the majors. And so it, over the next two or three years, we're literally witnessing history being made in determining who's going to be the greatest male tennis player of all time. You know, it, and that, to me, is what, is, is what Wimbledon really got, because basically you got three guys at the top of their game, or let's, I won't say at the top of the game now, but certainly have dominated tennis. From the time that Roger Federer won his first major in 2003, Wimbledon in 2003, to the most recent Wimbledon, 2021. That's 18 years. In 18 years, these three men have won 60 majors. And I was trying to think to myself, what kind of domination, you know, what could be comparable in domination? 
you know, where you have, you know, two or three individuals just basically dominating the sport. I mean, we certainly know in the 1930s and the 40s, you had Joe Lewis uh, dominating the heavyweight division. If you look at the golden age, what I call the golden age of heavyweights, you know, the 60s, uh, 65 all the way through the early 1980s, where you had Larry Holmes, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, and George Frazier, all of them pretty much dominating the heavyweight division for those period of two decades. Um, and even in the early part of this century, between 2004 and 2016, you know, you know, Vladimir and Vitaly Klitschko basically dominated the heavyweight division, where they literally won something like 25-plus heavyweight titles. This kind of domination is a rarity. But even more so is the fact that we are witnessing the determination. In two or three years, we're going to be able to say with confidence who is the greatest male tennis player of all time. Now, the women's are in kind of this, what I call, I'm like, in an interesting situation because we pretty much have seen the end of the Williams era. And pretty much we've seen that for the last two Ever since she's come back from, she's never been the same player. Coming back from her pregnancy, she's never been the same player. Maybe it was too much to ask because when she came back, she was like 37 years old, 36, 37. Yeah. She's still competitive. She's still able to get, for the most part, in the finals, four, you know, finals, quarterfinals or the final four. She's certainly the top ten player. But at 39, she's not what she was. And and right now, I don't see any real dominant tennis player on the women's side at this point. That somebody would say they're going to grab the, the mantle and be the next arena. I mean, there's people – I have hope for like Coco Gott. She's still young enough and certainly is talented enough to make that run, but this certainly is not there. But when you look at these three players, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, you're looking at three of the greatest in grace of tennis court, and they're all playing at the same time. This is like Ali and Foreman, Ali and Fraser. That's what you're comparing this to, where you literally had the greatest of the great playing each other and essentially dominated the game. Since 2017, every major has been Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, with the exception of the last year's U.S. Open. That's it. That's it. And that, to me, is the impressive side. And I'm going to get real quick here. Uh, you know, we're going to get to Dr. Larry in a couple of minutes. But, L.A., I, you look at this. You know, from a sports perspective, I mean, you see this kind of domination and what we're looking at. You know, what's your thoughts? Well, you know, Tom, I, I think that, you know, the, the question is uh, not the amount of titles. is It is the domination. I mean, Jordan is the greatest player that I've ever set eyes on in the basketball, but Bill Russell has more championships. So is Bill Russell greater or Michael Jordan? And people debate that, and people of this era would say it's Jordan. So it's it's 
definitely about dominance more so than titles, in my opinion. But in this case, Djokovic, um, Federer, and Nadal are all at 20. It's interesting to see, to, to hear uh, Djokovic say, well, I think I'm the greatest, um, but I'll let you, the media, decide that. I think he kind of put it out there and, and put it in a, in a framework that, you put it on someone else to make the case. And people debate these things all the time. Was Magic better than Bird or Jordan? All these different things and all these different uh, places. And I will say, though, even with the decline of the, the Williams sisters, as you said, you have to put them in that dominant era. Like they're just two people and they happen to be sisters, but they dominated the sport. You yeah. know, of course, uh, Serena more so than Venus for quite quite a long time. Now, you're right. I mean, here's the thing. The one thing with tennis, this reason why tennis is kind of a unique sport, and so is golf in this regard. You've got four majors. They're all essentially the same competition, and it's an individual sport. And that's why I think in tennis, it's a lot easier to sit back and make that judgment versus, let's say, Russell versus Jordan, because that's a team sport as much as anything else. You know, there's Correct. no doubt to me. I mean, Jordan, no doubt, was the best player of his era. Uh, and there's no deal. And so you sit back and, you know, there's just no doubt. Without Jordan, there is no Bulls dynasty. And right. you can certainly make that case. But in this case, you got four majors. They play the same major every year. They're pretty much at the same location. It's the same now, What about this, though? What about this? Yeah. Is I mean, Djokovic came on a little later than those guys, and, and you you got to uh, factor in the Dow's been injured a lot lately over the last few years. Federer's getting older, of course. But yeah. even with that, it, it you can compare, say, you know, the Jordan play against lesser or better competition than Russell. Maybe you say that with Djokovic. Did he, when he's in the field in those four majors, was it, some really tough competition in the times he wanted, as opposed to say Federer, who got there first, mm-hmm. or Nadal. You have to look at those two in terms of the competition he faced in the quarterfinals, in the semifinals, and in the finals. You know, I'm going to say the answer to that is going to be, I think he can make that case for this simple reason, because he and Nadal are about the same age. They're 34, 35. Uh, Federer is now four or five years older, so you can make. You know, he, they came a little bit later. Uh, and the thing is, they've played each other so many times. And as I stated, the interesting aspect, when you look at, you know, it, let me put this, it just seems like when Federer was at his, you know, still at his best, was at 37, he was still, he was able to win a major at 37. Uh, Nadal is 35, and so 34. But here's the thing, over the last several years, they found themselves having to play each other in quarterfinals and semifinals and finals. So it's not, I mean, so they're, it's kind of like seeing Fraser and Ali fighting every year. That's the best way I can put it. And that's what we're looking at. But, you know, you make a good point. You know, you know, it's about dominance as much as about, uh, you know, trying to define greatness. I just think tennis has a little bit easier time to define the greatness and golf is the same way because they have four tournaments every year where the best play against the best. And, it's and, a little it, bit with, and the other thing too, Tom, real quick, I know you to get, um, when you look at uh, the situations like Larry Holmes, 
he may have the double whammy in terms of not getting the respect yeah. because when he was at his peak, Ali was on the decline. Remember, he beat Ali, and he was trying to stop the yeah. fight, that whole thing. So he really didn't have, you know, the George Foremans or the Joe Frazier's to really fight, but he won titles. So do you hold that against him? Because he won, like they say in football or whatever, you know, uh, team sports, you, even if the, the competition is weak, you beat the competition in front of you. Well, he beat the competition in front of me. So do you take that away from him in terms of his legacy of winning the the, 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 the title? You know what I would say? You know, you and I have had this conversation before, and we're, uh, you know, we're running past our break, but this is too important right. to stop. <laughs> uh, but you know, my view on Larry Holmes is that he always got the short end of the stick for that reason. People right. never appreciated his greatness until later. Now people realize, hey, this guy won 21 titles in a row, 21 heavyweight titles in a row. And he dominated. I mean, he didn't just win right about, but for the most part, with very few exceptions, he dominated the heavyweight division. If you came in front, he stopped. <laughs> I mean, I can. I mean, rarely did he go to distance. And 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 the tragedy with him would be Jerry Cooney, uh, in the sense that right. Jerry Cooney was never the same fighter after he fought Holmes. And I thought you know, that Cooney would have fulfilled his potential. We would we'd be talking differently about Holmes. Unfortunately, he didn't. But Holmes fought a guy who was like several years younger. He was coming into his own. Was a hell of a slugger. And he won, and nobody will ever give him credit for the fact that the Jerry Cooney that night was the second best heavyweight in the world. And unfortunately, his subsequent career kind of ruined that. It's almost in the same way, you know, real quick here, because I think of, you know, when people ask me, how great is Floyd Mayweather? And I said, there's one fight you can judge Floyd Mayweather, and it stands. He beat Canelo, Alvarez Canelo who was yep. at the time 23 years old, and that's the only defeat of Canelo's record. And since then, he's been a dominant fighter on different divisions. And you guys say, well, you know what? He beat a guy who was a natural uh, super uh, you know, super and beat Which him. Which is very impressive. It was impressive. And that, to me, is why I, when people say it's Mayweather good, it's like, hey, he won the one fight that was the – that could define any great fighter. He beat a guy who's undefeated, who has since then become an elite fighter in his own right. And he beat yeah. him at the age of 23. And that's insane. I'll tell you what. Well, listen, I, you know, we got Dr. Larry on the phone, and if you want to kind of stick around and comment as well, we got a few things we want to talk about. Uh, but right now we're going to take a quick break. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network with our good friends, L.A. and soon, and also Dr. Larry. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? 
one in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson. we got Dr. Larry on the line. Uh, don't forget you listen to this broadcast on a routine basis at the BaxonNews.airtime.pro. Uh, just simply go to the website. we got your times available. If, uh, for example, 10 p.m., 10 a.m. Uh, Central Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. You can listen to the show and listen to the show again at 3, 8, 3 p.m. Central, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, you probably said, well, Tom, why are you using Central first? Because I live in Iowa in the Central time zone. And <laughs> so I could do that. <laughs> yeah, so I could do that. Yeah, so that has absolutely nothing to do other than, in fact, I'm living in Iowa in the Central time. And that's and don't forget, StreamYard.com. StreamYard.com. Uh, we're on that as well. So you can listen to our show so many different ways. It's great. And, and joining me. And his brilliance to tonight's show is Dr. Larry. I just, again, want to kind of repeat, uh, uh, Coco Konsky, a close friend of hers, committed suicide. And she was, and she's now dealing with that particular issue with close friends of this individual. So welcome, Dr. Larry, who basically, you know, I caught him as he's walking in the door about five minutes before uh, eight, uh, 6 p.m. And, and I said, hey, Larry, I need you. Really? <laughs> well, I'm not going to commit suicide. <laughs> Is LA still here? Uh, I think you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Let me see. Uh, I think uh, if he might be somewhere, somewhere out there. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. But all right. Here's the thing. I'm going to start off with this. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think people should know one thing. You know things, you know, the you know, development of vaccines and dealing with vaccines. You know, you've had experience of that because you helped, you know, you were instrumental in the Bush years in getting vaccines out for influenza. And so yeah. you know something about the, you know something about the process, and you also know uh, the people in the NIH. So you have a pretty good clue who they are, including the great Tony Fauci. And, but I'm going to start off with this point. It's becoming self-evident that this virus originated in a laboratory. And, there, and I wanted to kind of put this in perspective and context in this way, and that is the, for, where, the impact it will have on foreign policies in relationship, China, United States and the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, this is how I'm kind of looking at it. Uh, first of all, number one, you know, China pretty much lied about a good portion of the coronavirus when it first came out. You know, the information we needed never got to us. 
in the right, correct way, including its transmission, you know, how it can be transmitted and what is transmission. And the fact that we're now figuring out that there may be a laboratory accident, in fact, I'll put it this way, it's most likely, and that's what science, you know, people are now coming to the conclusion, indeed it was a laboratory accident. My question is this. In the future, if the Chinese are not going to be upfront and honest about what happened at the laboratory, if they're not going to be upfront and honest about other, you know, about this, and basically say to us, you know, yeah, we had the issue, here's the problem, here's how we're going to fix it. I mean, they haven't even acknowledged that. And the question is, the next pandemic we deal, we see, and, and pandemics have been coming and going, so it's not like this isn't going to happen again. Historically speaking, pandemics have occurred, you know, throughout all of history. But to me, how do you deal with a country that you will not be able to trust in the future in dealing with another global pandemic? And well, we have, a, yeah. we, have a, we have a lot of experience uh, with the Soviet Union for 50 years, so... You know, we treated them the same way that we treated them. We we treated the uh, Soviets. We don't trust them. We try to make, we try to have some kind of rapprochement. We try to have uh, them uh, uh, understand uh, what our position is on uh, on certain rules, and uh, and sometimes we have a. Enforcement on the part of uh, an administration, and sometimes we don't. But so uh, neither we nor they were entirely consistent over that period. But nevertheless, uh, we did emerge from it without ever having a shooting war with them. We had a lot of little, a lot of uh, smaller wars, but never with them. And I think we have to. The, and the, really, the key to the end of the of that era was uh, the buildup that uh, that uh, Ronald Reagan uh, encouraged and uh, funded, and then he convinced uh, the uh, Soviets that uh, that uh, they weren't ever going to win. But uh, it took a long, long time, and we were in the era for since 1946, really. Uh, uh, we were on the verge of some kind of a major uh, world war. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's yeah. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I, and that's a good point to bring up. You know, we've done this, we've had this kind of experience before with rivals. But I mean, the question to me comes in. The, but here's the thing that bothers me, and this is why I'm going to put it in this way. Uh, and you brought this yourself, the attention yourself. You know that. Because what we're talking about is not just, you know, the laboratory, actually. But the fact is they're doing what we call gain-of-function research, which basically means they're taking viruses and turning them into super viruses. And my Well, problem, we don't know exactly what they're doing. That, okay, that's Because the they, they won't we tell know, us. Yeah. Well, they know, we know they're doing gain-of-function research. We know that part. Uh, we know that part, that they're studying these viruses. And look at Adam, and maybe even we know that because the documents are there. Not only that, but we, uh, the, for example, 
the head of Echo Alliance himself has done papers with one of the Chinese uh, professors, you know, the Chinese researchers on this subject. And we know that money has gone over to them from the NIH and others that this was. So we know that some of this work is going on. I guess the question would be, we don't know what they're doing with this research. Uh, well, that's one of the questions. Yeah. And to me, the real problem, I'm say somebody, if I'm coming in this, maybe this, what I'm, what kind of makes me the most, you know, interested and nervous about it, if, if we're going to be involved, if we're going to have gain and function research done, essentially what it is, it's, you know, taking viruses, creating viruses with the quote-unquote idea of finding future cures for future pandemics or other usage. Uh, there's also a very short step from doing that to biological weapons. And, and, and so my question, you know, so the question is the possible. Let me put this way: I would never have thought thought this a year ago. I just stayed on the show that this is a possibility, and I remember people saying I was nuts. I was a conspiracy theorist. I'm suggesting the idea that we ought to look into the idea that it did originate in a laboratory. You know, Senator Cotton did the same thing, and but now we now nobody's laughing at it or calling us conspiracy theories. But, you know, let's say I'll use the word it's an accident. But is there a possibility, could you ever think in any circumstances, this was done deliberately as a test to see what would happen? Sure. Sure. In fact, I mentioned that on this program. Exactly. Yeah, that's why I brought that question to you. Because I think it's a serious subject. This is why I think the this issue matters in three, two ways. Number one, it matters because if they're not going to tell you the truth, and if indeed originated in the laboratory, you know, we, you know, the world better understand is that we have a rogue nation out there doing this research that may not have a very secure lab. That's number one. And number two, the possibility that the next time that they could, in fact, unleash something now that they see what happened. Well, we basically shut down the economy of our enemies uh, with this virus. Uh, your thoughts? If, if you got any follow-up to that? Well, as I've mentioned before, the, the key question uh, that one of the key questions that we want to know is: was this was this uh, as you say was it was it intentional? Was it an, really an act of war, or was it an accident that uh, they uh, tried pretty hard to, uh, uh, to well, it's, it's pretty clear that, that, that their reaction was, it, it appears that it was disorganized and not uh, well thought out, not well planned, and all of that sort of uh, supports the idea that it was initially an accident that 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 it, that it got out. The next step, though, is it's pretty clear that what they did was try to uh, uh, make sure that they in 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 China were not the only uh, economy in the world that was uh, affected by this uh, tremendous uh, tremendously. Uh, uh, dangerous uh, 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 virus, and and so they did a number of very aggressive things. Uh, they cut off 
they isolated uh, the uh, Wuhan uh, people, uh, the province more or less, and and uh, and then they, but they did not uh, stop uh, uh, inter. Uh, uh, national international tra- travel between uh, China and the rest of the world. Uh, they then uh, tried to uh, corner the market in medical supplies that would be used to treat this sort of thing. And in spite of the fact that they were the world's greatest uh, uh, producer for for themselves, so so they did a number of things that were definitely not uh, simply. Uh, Spur of the moment uh, reactions. Uh, they 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 saw what happened and then they took advantage of it to make sure that uh, that the rest of the world had at least as bad and not worse uh, experience with this uh, pandemic. And so even though it was probably not, I, I'm in my opinion anyway, it was not initially a military. Uh, uh, act uh, it was not a malicious act. Uh, it quickly turned into a uh, an aggressive uh, 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 movement of uh, of uh, the pieces on the board. So uh, I think that there the answer to that is not going around waving a lot of uh, threats of uh, investigations and and pleading for some kind of open. Uh, Open, uh, transparent is our favorite word now. Uh, uh, yeah. Investigation of of what happened. None of that is, is important. What's important is what are we going to do? What what actions are we going to take? And the Biden administration is great for talk. They're getting better all the time, but they haven't done anything, and so nobody believes them. And that was the well, the distinct difference between them and the Trump administration. Because every time that Trump opened his mouth, they, they, it was something that they did. They were announcing an action that they took in response to some, some other, uh, you know, some other country's uh, activity. Now hold on, that's on this is Tom Donaldson with the Donaldson Files here with Dr. Larry on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me on Fifty Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are, a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger is too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Yeah, Napa Know How. This is the sponsor of this next uh, segment. And don't forget the Bachelor News Airtime Pro. You can get, you know, not only listen to this great show, but other great shows as well, including You and the Law, the LA Bachelor Radio Show, and Locker Talk. All great shows 
and you and you can listen to this on StreamYard.com as well. So we're everywhere on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And now we're back here with Doctor Larry. And okay, here's what, let me ask you this question, Doctor Larry. Where do we go from? Because here's the thing: we're talking trillions of dollars in damages in the world. And and the question comes into play is this: okay. You know, is there a point somewhere where we have to say to the Chinese or the world that says, you know what, you caused this trouble, you know, what are you going to do to, rec- you know, compensate us for this trouble? Uh, you know, is that a possibility, you know, or is that something, you know, let me ask you, is that, would you do that? Would you consider that as a policy? You know, reckon, you know. Well, um, I don't think that. In a, in a, I don't think that's going to happen in a in a straightforward way. Uh, one of the uh, geniuses, frankly, of of the Trump administration was uh, the use of tariffs as a uh, and virtually as a weapon. And uh, uh, I think something along that line, uh, boycotts or or. Uh, Web, uh, tariffs, something that, that uh, hits the pocket, the pocketbook of the uh, Chinese is a far more uh, like is far more likely to be real. It's, it, it's something we would control, and and secondly, uh, they they would they would have to it would make the point that we just uh, we will not put up with this kind of uh, uh, this kind of treatment, but. You know, we've got to do, if we don't do anything, as we have not so far except talk a lot, then uh, they they don't care. They, they don't care about what we say. They they know that nobody believes Biden anyway, when he, whatever he says, and uh, they're, they're laughing behind their backs. Mm-hmm. That's just oh, yeah, my I mean, opinion. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it's, well, it's the word. I mean, here's the thing, because I think, to me, the foreign policy aspect of this is significant enough to look at and say, okay, what do we do now? Because, as I stated, you know, you know, we know they're doing gain, what we call gain and function research. We know that. Yeah, we've done it ourselves, and we know that this is something they're working on, and we even know that money has gone in that direction. We also know. That okay in 2017, the State Department even acknowledged the fact that the Chinese military were now involved with this laboratory, and that there's also warning about the laboratory's uh, safety record or you know, the possibility. If I'm not correct, and I know you mentioned that before. Yeah, but you have to you 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 have to be realistic too. I mean, uh, yeah. The United States military is deeply involved in all of in all of the uh, BSL for uh, research that's going on in the United States too. So I mean we can't we can't claim that they're doing something that we're not doing because yeah. uh, we're no we don't know what 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 are, what are the what are they looking at now in terms of military uh, applications in our own country. And to expect to, to expect the Chinese to do something like that, uh, you know, I think is not reasonable. I think I think we have to be realistic, but we also have to be firm, and we have to do something that 
that yeah. uh, hurt, hurts them somehow without starting a world war. Yeah. Well, I, like I said, that's an interesting point because obviously I'm not saying we didn't, we aren't, you know, because we, you know, like I say, we're not involved in our own research in the line. As I stated, you know, we've been involved in that research. But I will put it, you know, but my, well, the, the second part of this to me is the fact that our own NIH themselves have been working directly with the Chinese. Uh, and we know that. And my, you know, so the other question comes into play to, you know, is there a point somewhere where, hey, we quit cooperating with them on this? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I talked to Tony about that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, here's the thing. Yeah. You know, that's the you know that's you know that's the issue, which now brings me to the second part. You know what I wanted to get into is the censorship side of the equation. Now I will get to it a little bit later. You know I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about, let's say for example, Congressman Green was put on a 12-hour uh, Twitter holiday, I guess what they call it, or Twitter jail, because of a tweet she made, and I I got the tweet in hand. And my first thought when I read the tweet was, there's nothing inaccurate with this tweet. With this tweet, she gave an opinion based on the, you know what she stated. And I also know, like I said, a routine guest of ours, uh, Justin Hart, is having issues with Facebook on a couple of his posts. And I know, and, and so we're, and and here's the thing that comes into play. And this is why I'm going to kind of move into this in this way because if I have stated on Twitter in May. When I stay in the show, this is something we ought to look into. I would have been flagged by the various social media. I would have been flagged. Yeah, because it's quote unquote misinformation. And yet, uh, what can I say? And yet the the information now turns out to be true. And and and, when, and we do know that, for example, Facebook and others went to Tony Fauci to discuss how best to report this. I mean, we got those e- and there, there was emails in which there was a change between Zuckerberg and uh, Fauci as an example. And we do know that there was an org- that there were scientists organizing, you know, through various uh, scientific journals like Lancet. To say, okay, this was a natural event. This is not a man-made event, and anybody says otherwise, and essentially cut off that debate by having the major scientific journals say, "Well, the issue's been settled." In other words, information has been censored from the American people, and to me, the implication is that you know, the scientific side of the equation has been impacted. Namely, if we're at a point where if I disagree, here's my evidence, and your response to me is I'm not going to let you tell anybody. Uh, you know how does science continue when we're basically doing exactly that? Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, I think so. I'm not right. sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, what I'm saying is that if I would have placed and said, "Hey, there's some science to indicate this is going on." Instead of having a scientific debate, going into the literature, you know, going you know toe to toe on a scientific here's my science here's your science, or simply saying on a very social media site, you know, here's the evidence we see so far, 
you know, they're basically saying, we're not even going to allow you to do that. We're not even going to allow you to do that. You know, we're not even going to allow you to put that on our media, or we're not going to allow you to publish this in our journal. Now, yeah. who, in other who, words, who, who, is, who are you talking about? The Chinese okay, or, or the administration? Us. Uh, I mean, no, Facebook, us. You know, our social media. You know, they was, and as I stated, uh, I do know if you look at the emails, they had emails between the you know, media sites and, and Fauci on the narrative. You know, you know, what's going on? How should we treat this news-wise? So, in fact, you had Tony Fauci essentially telling the media, this is how I want you to cover it. They keep the other side out. Well, I, I think I think I, I I don't know this because uh, I haven't talked to Tony in a long time. But but yeah. uh, I I think I think what he was worried about right from the beginning was that he first of all I think he assumed that the uh, origin of the virus was in the Wuhan facility. And so if he assumed that, then the the very thing he did not want to have happen was his connection with uh, with that facility, which actually spanned uh, right from the concept all the way through to the uh, chartering of the the facility and the the uh, uh, BSL uh, for uh, inspection for the uh, procedures. All of that he was involved in. In fact, he also arranged uh, money to uh, to the Chinese. Now, and you have to realize during that whole period, the um, the uh, attraction of the China of China uh, by two Americans. Uh, was uh, extremely positive. They were looking at American c- companies were looking at it as a major uh, market, the greatest market in the world, and they were uh, they were just tripping over each other trying to get in there and and uh, get a piece of what they considered that that big buy. And there and now that that is still one of the biggest problems that we have with China, and that is that. We have so much investment and so much uh, uh, dependence upon uh, um, American American companies uh, have, have have a great dependence upon the Chinese workforce and uh, as well as the uh, uh, investment uh, in in the various uh, uh, factories and and uh, production facilities. That uh, they 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 almost can't cannot afford to leave, even even if if the if the if the uh, Chinese government is now found to be taking advantage of them as in a, a military con- uh, context, and this this is this this was, but the, all through the 90s and the and the uh, early 2000s, um, nobody was telling any saying anything bad about the Chinese and and Tony was was one of them uh, now he's a, he was afraid right from the beginning I think of uh, being associated with with that Wuhan facility 
and he didn't he was trying to cover his his tracks and that really is 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 why because once once it was found out that he was uh involved and as and as the uh, suspicions about the Wuhan uh, facility uh involvement in the beginning of this pandemic were raised and uh and came more and more uh to the front, forefront uh it, it it was therefore he was more and more uh desperate to try to keep his earlier uh relationships uh, uh, uh out of the out of the picture which he he did for a long time but it now caught up with him yeah hold on i thought this tom Donaldson with dr larry here in the bachelor news radio network Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. to give Dad his medicine. At 6 a.m., I make his breakfast. At 7 a.m., I shower. I start laundry at 8. At 10, we go for a walk. Every day, I wake up at 5 a.m. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Don't forget, you can listen to this show and other shows on the BachelorNews.Airtime.Pro and also on StreamYard.com. It's the Bachelor News Radio Network. It's the Donaldson Files. Okay, and just to show you that I am a multitasker and in so many ways. For, for baseball fans, just to let you know, the Oakland A's have just defeated the Los Angeles Angels and the and the Milwaukee Brewers, who are in first place in this National League Central, are behind the, the Kansas City Royals, five to two. Uh, just for that information alone, just to let you know what's going on in the sports world. Now we're back here to more serious uh, events. And, uh, and my good friend, Dr. Larry, here on the Donaldson Files. And don't forget, tomorrow night, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just it's Resistance Wednesday, Donaldson Files followed by the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. So don't forget to stay tuned for that as well for tomorrow night on this particular network. All right. Okay, I'm gonna, here's, the, here's, the thing, here's the other thing that... That I get, I want to put it in this capacity, and I'm not going to say because I say that, you know, all right. I'm going to give you a, 
you know, we're talking about, you know, the administration pushing uh, Facebook and others to, quote-unquote, stop uh, uh, misinformation. Okay. So, and here's the, well, here, let me, here's a quote. I'm going to say, uh, it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's kind of a controversial person in her own right. And, okay, this is what she wrote, Twitter, Twitter. Controversial vaccines should not be forced on our military for a virus that may, that's not dangerous for not obese people and those under 65 with 6,000 facts reported dead and more concerning side effects reported, the VAX should be a choice, not a mandate for everyone. Okay. There's nothing in that statement, scientifically speaking, that's not true. Other than her opinion is, you know, this tree is simply saying, you know, people should make the decision on whether or not they have to be vaccinated or not. Because if you look at the data, the data will say if you are in good health, don't have underlying conditions, uh, you will not, you know, you, you know, the coronavirus is not as dangerous, let's say, for those, for those old folks. And there are 6,000 related deaths. Now, let's, I'll be very clear here. The 6,000 related, you know, 6,000 deaths of Vaccine doesn't mean that the vaccine was responsible for the death, but it is recorded with the CDC. Now, you don't have to agree or disagree with, let's say, you know, to me, this is an opinion. This is not a fact. This is an opinion. And she was put in Twitter jail for 12 hours. My question is, what is a misinformation? Uh, are we at a point where if I give an opinion that maybe the majority of so-called scientists and people, the conventional wisdom says is true, but I can back it up with some facts, you know, are we at that stage with that kind of information being, you know, possibly now being censored? Your thoughts? Well, <clears throat> I think that's kind of, excuse me, but I think that's kind of a nit. Um, And I also think that some of the conservative uh, opinions on this uh, are really back in the wrong horse. Uh, The the fact is that, at least from what I know, that that 99.6% of the uh, people that have become have uh, been hospitalized with this uh, COVID-19 in the last in this last outbreak uh, uh, are people that have not had the vaccine, and uh, so it's just common sense that the smart thing to do is to go and get your vaccine and and uh, and hope that uh, you know that nothing else comes along. But but the other the other piece of this is that um, if you don't want if you don't want it to get the the other piece of it is frankly that the FDA ought to make up their damn mind as to whether this is a good or a bad thing because if if they are the fact that they are holding off 
their uh, endorsement. They're saying this is a, a temporary and uh, a, a approval, a temporary uh, authorization to uh, to use the vaccine, and and it's not permanent, and it's still it is it, that that assumption seems to be. Uh, any normal person would make the assumption that if they can't endorse it, then uh, then uh, there's something there's potentially at least something wrong with it, and and that that in turn that holding up of the final approval of uh, the FDA of uh, of these uh, vaccines is based upon a, 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 a period. Uh, something that's somewhat out of date, namely uh, that you uh, have to have a uh, a history uh, that is measured in length of time that um, any particular substance is being used uh, and and not with or without uh, uh, some uh, side effects. And okay, well, here's the, the, the difference yeah. is that now in today's world, you should be talking not in terms of length of time. You should be talking in terms of um, numbers of uh, people that that have actually had the had the the uh, vaccine. So I I I just think that there's I think this this whole thing could really get a lot clearer if the FDA make up their mind. Yeah. Okay. Here's the first one. The one. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily. I agree with you. In a sense. I've been vaccinated, so I, you know, and I, and I, some, and I would tell people to get vaccinated, but, uh, but I'm not going to disagree with what you just stated, in you know, in that regard. But I'm also going to say that, okay, let me take, let me give an example. I mean, let me put it this way: we know very clearly when you look at the CDC's old data that the vast majority of people who are being hospitalized still have those underlying conditions. It's still like the same groups that we had before. Uh, while many of them appear to be unvaccinated, the reality is uh, that they still have the same underlying conditions. And, uh, and, and the point here that to me is not that, I, you know, what I'm not, I'm not, you know, my point is not that whether, my point to me is that, A, if you're young and healthy, the chances of you getting a serious, you know, complication from COVID is rare compared to somebody who's much older. And I, and the question is, and two, we do know that at least a thousand people have already been diagnosed with pericard, you know, pericarditis and myocarditis associated. Again, that's a 1,000 out of about 12 million people, young people vaccinated. So you can do the math. You know, the odds are in your favor. But, you know, you know to, to me, you know, the, the first part of the question is, should you be forced to be vaccinated or should you have that choice? I would say I would say you should have the choice, but you should go ahead and do it because the odds are in your favor. Uh, yeah. Going back to the other part that you've just mentioned, which goes back to why we're having problems with some of these groups, you know, some of these people are not deciding to be vaccinated is that the FDA themselves. For example, when somebody says to me, well, get vaccinated, but now I got to go wear your mask. Uh, and I'm thinking to myself, then why do I get vaccinated? You're telling me it's not working. I mean, and that too, you know, that too is a problem. 
I mean, that's like, you know, that, you know, that too, you know, it, you know, the message is clear, is not clear, as you stated. You know, either I say this thing's good, let's approve it, and let's thing because we do have enough evidence to sit back and say, is this that, okay, if even if all six thousand people recorded as dying who have died after receiving the vaccine, we're still talking something like 200 million people have been injected with the vaccine. About 160 million have gotten both doses. Uh, Sounds like to me the odds are still in your favor. Uh, And certainly if you look at the odds in this way, if you're at a certain age, you're far more likely to have complications from COVID than having complications for the vaccine. And I think think we have... You're taking yeah, the you're, you're taking the uh, practical uh, issue here, but but the issue that that is being uh, debated in in uh, other circles is that that certain conservatives are saying that there this is a infringement. When first of all, they're they're making very strong accusations that the uh, Biden administration is trying to use. Uh, Social media to enforce a, uh, a law or in effect that they uh, that they are constitutionally uh, prohibited from making, and uh, and the uh, argument is that that is uh, that that's wrong and that the people and the people should have the right to not be vaccinated if they want and they shouldn't have anybody preaching at them. And uh, I just think that well, the, I mean, whole thing, the whole thing is just no, so I, muddled up. No, 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 it's muddled up. I mean, said there's a practical aspect of freedom to be able to make that decision. But it's also a practical aspect of putting out the information in a logical way to say, okay, here's your odds, sure. here it is, here's the work. And, and the FDA, you know, and the federal government has not only not done that, uh, but it's like you know, I had a guest on the show, you know, Kevin. They Rose. change it every t- every couple of days. Yeah, it's not only that, but they're changing again. You're you're looking at, okay, now you're looking at uh, mass mandates back in schools, where that was where the CDC has already just stated, well, you don't need to wear masks. You know, maybe children shouldn't have masks because it, it may be counterproductive. Now they're back to saying now you can wear masks. Well, I mean that inconsistency is not good. That inconsistency has made it easier for people not to get you know to decide not to get vaccinated there is no clear message as you stated and uh but the thing that comes into play that is like the trust but i'm I can, my, my point is very simple is that you know you know learn the risk deal with the risk learn you know look up the risk and the benefit and go from there you got a family doctor call your doctor up and say what do you think but I don't think it should be a mandatory aspect for a virus that kills four, two to four per 1,000 people. That's what we're looking at overall. Uh, and it looks like we're at the, that point of the show. I want to thank you for being on the show. This is Tom Donaldson. We'll, we'll join us again tomorrow on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Don't forget, you can hear us on StreamYard.com and thebachelornews.airtime.pro. This is Tom Donaldson saying good night.
Hey, we want to welcome everyone to You and the Law podcast show on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We're glad that you are able to to tune in and listen to another episode of one of the hottest podcast shows where we talk about everything that's related to uh, policing in America, dealing with the minority communities. And so today we are uh, we're going to have on two special guests. Uh, who will be talking with us about um, the history of the black U.S. Marshals. And so uh, my uh, co-host, Chief Swag, will uh, not be uh, joining us today, but uh, he is uh, taking a very well-deserved vacation, so he's he's not going to be on the air with us today. So, But uh, he is uh, most likely listening wherever he's vac- vacationing at. But... Uh, I need to uh, want to in- introduce uh, our two guests. Uh, we've actually had um, one of them on before, uh, Art Burton. He is a um, just a wealth of of, uh, of knowledge about uh, uh, law enforcement uh, in the um, in the, in the western uh, area of law enforcement, um, where he's definitely been a historian about Bass Reeves. So uh, if you want to know anything about Bass Reeves, you got to talk to Art Burton. He can definitely tell you all you need to know about Bass Reeves. And our um, other guest is Sylvester Jones, and he is the retired assistant director with the U.S. Marshals, um, uh, with the U.S. Marshals Service. So uh, guys, uh, definitely want to thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast show and talk to us about some history uh, uh, related to U.S. Marshals. Glad to be here with you. Likewise, glad to be here. All right, all right. So, well, hey, uh, you know, Art, you, you are just, you have so much knowledge about everything related to um, uh, law enforcement dealing with uh, the era of, of Bass Reeves and all of your research that you've done and uh, in the Indian Territory related to, to law enforcement. So, you know, I want to kind of start with you and let our listeners know a little bit about your background. And, and um, you know, you, you're an author. You've written several books. So just kind of share with our listeners uh, a little bit more about Art Burton. Um, uh, thank you, uh, Virgil. I'm glad to be on your show this evening. I uh, served, I'm retired, but I spent approximately 38 years in higher education. I was a college administrator, assistant dean, uh, director of minority student affairs at Benedictine University in Illinois, and then I was director of African American student affairs at Loyola University and uh, Columbia College in Chicago. And then I taught uh, as an adjunct uh, professor, African-American studies at uh, South Suburban College and Prairie State College and started in 2003 full-time at uh, South Suburban College as a history professor, and I retired in 2015. And uh, I taught a multitude of courses, uh, African-American history, United States history, African history, and uh, I taught a little bit of European history. Uh, that's my academic background. And then on the flip side, I'm, I'm a jazz musician, and I've been playing jazz music uh, for 
40 years plus professionally. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we d- definitely see your, your, your pictures with the, what do you call them, the bongos? Right, right. Bongos. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and you've written several books uh, related to the Western frontier uh, in law enforcement. Right, right. Yeah, uh, I started writing uh, when I was in college. I was writing a column. I wrote it for 13 years on blues and jazz. And then uh, I uh, decided to take a look at my mother's from Oklahoma, and I have cowboys in my family that active in the rodeo scene and such, and I just decided to see what information I could find on African Americans on the Western frontier. You know, the majority of uh, the Westerns that Hollywood has produced, you know, they call them cowboy movies, but majority of them aren't about cowboys. They're generally about outlaw or lawmen on the Western frontier. And that was Mm -hmm. my area of interest. What part did African Americans play in law enforcement or the criminality of the Western frontier? And I was kind of surprised when I found out that the majority of people that made uh, a name for themselves were from Oklahoma, pre-state Oklahoma, when it was the Indian and Oklahoma territories uh, for the most part, although there were black lawmen and outlaws all over the West. But uh, the largest number of them I found in preponderance on the percentage basis were from the Indian and Oklahoma territory. And that whole history is very unique. Uh, So I wrote a book first book came out in 1991, Black, Red, and Deadly, Black and Indian Gunfighters of the Indian Territory. And uh, that created a little stir around the country and around the world, actually. And then in 1999, I wrote a book on Buffalo soldiers, African-Americans who are scouts and soldiers on the Western frontier. And that book is titled Black uh, Black Buckskin and Blue African American Scouts and Soldiers on the Western Frontier. That's the name of that book. And uh-huh. uh, now, and in 2006, I wrote a biography on Bass Reeves, who was the uh, most noted lawman in the Indian Territory. And he was also in my first book, but I had a lot of people told me I need to write a book just on him. So I had to go back and do an empirical research on uh, federal records, those that were available newspaper articles, oral stories I could pick up, and old books that I could find anything on Bass Reeves. And so that was the first uh, research book on a black lawman on the Western frontier that was ever published in the United States, and it came out. And that was Black Gun, Silver Star, The Life and Legend of Frontier Marshal Bass Reeves. And Bass, Mm -hmm. that book turned out to be uh, a metaphor for me because Bass was the greatest lawman I've ever come across. Uh, on the Western frontier and maybe one of the greatest in the history of this country, period. And I do believe he was probably the greatest frontier hero in America's history. And then after that, uh, 2019, I had a book uh, came out on Cherokee Bill, and he was a black outlaw, again, from the Indian Territory. I wrote about him a little bit in my first book, but I had to go back and clean up. There was a lot of misinformation on this genealogy and exactly what he did. Then I found that the New York Times had a running commentary on his outlaw career uh, up until the time he was executed. And so that book is titled Cherokee Bill, Black Cowboy, Indian Outlaw. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, you de- you definitely have been busy, Art, with uh, following the history of 
of uh, of blacks in in law enforcement, especially in in the native Native American part of, of Oklahoma, and um, you know, and I think you know this topic that we're talking about today is um, dealing with uh, you know the history of, of black U.S. Uh, black uh, U.S. deputy marshals, and you know when I served as the police chief in Bowley. Uh, you know, uh, we came across uh, that there was the first town marshal who was also serving as a, a U.S. Uh, deputy marshal was killed in the line of duty, and right. so uh, uh, a lot of information that you helped uh, you helped assist with with some information related to W.R. Dick Shaver. So, uh, you know, uh, this, I think this is a show where I think you know our listeners are definitely going to be. Uh, you know, enlightened about the the history of of not just U.S. Uh, U.S. Marshals, but just the history of of blacks in law enforcement and 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 what uh, what they contributed to uh, to to the history of law enforcement. And so, guys, we're getting ready to come up and, and take our first break. And when we come back, uh, Sylvester, we're going to get into your distinguished career as the assistant uh, director of United States Marshal Service. So, but you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Um, I think a story that passed, but I, 
I started my uh, law enforcement career working for the uh, Markham Police Department. Uh, worked for them back in Illinois. It's a, it's a suburban police department just uh, south of Chicago um, in a, a small department, and I worked for them for four years. And uh, in my third year, I, I, I came into the uh, squad room, and I saw a sign that said, wanted U.S. Marshals. And so I, 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 it was posted on the board, and it had recruitment information. And so I was like, well, I didn't even think they still had people. Where, I used to watch Westerns. I'm a big Western fan. And so I, uh, I was like, well, they still got Marshals? And so I did a little research, come to find out, yeah, they, you know, Marshals had evolved from the West, and they, you know, uh, were still in existence and uh, moving, you know, doing good things. And so I applied myself and uh, two other guys from the department. And, um, you know, I passed. The other two guys didn't. And, you know, uh, make a long story short, I, I got on and attended our training academy in uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, in 1987. And I returned back to Chicago as a – go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Okay, I returned back to Chicago and, uh, as, you know, served as a deputy marshal. And uh, actually, they were going to send me to New York, but I caught a, caught a break. And uh, and I wasn't going to take the job. They were going to send me to New York. I was not going to take it. It, uh, it was a tough transition to go to the Southern District of New York at, back at that time as a new deputy marshal. I was, uh, you know, so I uh, I was lucky. Uh, the chief there, somebody got to him, and they kept me in Chicago and you know, I, I, you know, the first couple years working there, you're going to do a lot of what we call hooking and hauling, moving prisoners and going to court, uh, producing prisoners in court. So I did that for the first couple years, and then I got into uh, fugitive investigations. And, um, uh, you know, was was a pretty pretty good fugitive investigator. And that's kind of how I first met Art. Um, and... Uh, uh, they had a show uh, called Chicago's Most Wanted uh, back in the day. It was uh, on Fox, local Fox News, and um, they would highlight fugitives from different um, departments. And so um, uh, I was able to highlight some fugitives, and actually I think I caught the first fugitive that, the, um, that they highlighted, and we worked in conjunction with the Chicago Crime Commission, so we would, um, you know, they would put the fugitives in the media, and then if we, you know, caught them, then we'd have to, you know, they'd come in, uh, it'd be in the news. we called them how we called them, i get interviewed. So uh, I remember there was some kind of a ceremony, and uh, I, I still have some photos of uh, Art and I uh, at the ceremony for this program, Chicago's Most Wanted, and that's how I met Art. And uh, so my career, you know, I kind of speeded up a little bit, took off. Uh, I left Chicago, and I ended up going to the U.S. To the, uh, US Virgin Islands for uh, almost two years, a little less. I got promoted went to Puerto Rico for two years, and I got promoted um, there, and I came to headquarters. I served in our prisoner operations division as a chief inspector for um, almost two years, and I was a chief of court security for a uh, year and a half, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, as the chief deputy U.S. marshal, and then I was promoted um, as the first African American deputy marshal to come up the ranks to uh, make assistant director, and I was assigned to judicial security division where I served for four years prior to uh, my last job, where I served uh, running our prisoner programs 
for a number of years and, uh, you know, and, and witness protection, witness security. And we've done some really good things while I was leading witness security. So I brought you kind of up to speed with, with me and my background with the Marshall Service. And I saw Art again in 1991 at a black history program uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's when I got to know him. I got to know about his work as an as a author. And I have all his books but the last one, but he's promised to send me that one. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm waiting on it. <laughs> it's coming. Uh, also, okay, it's coming. All right. Well, hey, Chief Dean, you heard him say it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I heard him say it. Yeah, so, so I'm, I'm gonna say if he, you know, if he's gonna send you one, I'm gonna have to get one from him when I. He's gonna actually be here in Oklahoma, so, so, uh, so, so Art, hopefully you'll have a few extra books uh, on hand. Nope. So, <laughs> no problem. Yeah, but, but, uh, you know, if you're just now tuning in to you and the Law uh, podcast show, you know, uh, we are we're talking about the history of black uh, of the black US deputy marshals and uh we've got uh two great guests uh on on the show um Art Burton who is an author who's written several books uh we also have on uh Sylvester Jones who is a retired US marshal uh, uh he served in the uh witness security division he's also an author on uh hunting criminals to 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 hide them uh in his journey to his uh his journey to and with the United States Marshal Service. So we're just glad to have you guys on and and and, and enlighten our listeners about um uh, the the blacks in uh who have served in in the um US Marshal Service and you know I, I don't think a lot of people around the country are really uh aware of you know pro- probably these are some some of the untold stories about uh blacks who have served as deputy US marshals uh, because it's a distinguished position to have you know uh every president gets to uh put a uh a, a deputy US marshal in in a western district or the eastern district and so um that that is something that uh that is you know appointed by a president but Sylvester do you know how many uh are you aware maybe how many African Americans have served in those capacities uh have been appointed by a president to serve as a deputy US marshal I don't know that 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 particular number that'd be a a great number to uh, research uh, but um, let me let me just clarify that the uh, you know that the U.S. Marshals um, you, you know are, are you know, when you come in you're not appointed by the the president. However, the U.S. Marshal for each district. The U.S. Marshals, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Okay, well, the, the U.S. Marshal uh, is appointed by the president, confirmed by the U.S. Senate, and um, mm-hmm. there have been a, a a number. I think the first history tells us. The first presidential appointee, which uh, as U.S. Marshal, was back in 1877, and that was that was the uh, late Honorable Frederick uh, Douglass, who was the Marshal for Washington D.C. Can you imagine back then in 1877, um, uh, Frederick Douglass being a U.S. Marshal? You know, he was uh, we know him uh, from history as a great abolitionist. Uh, he helped start a military uh, unit that the movie Glory was based on up in Massachusetts, and uh, 
you know, so what a history. He he, he is the first, um, you know, appointed U.S. Marshal, history tells us. Well, and, and I'm going to tell you, Sylvester, that is the first I've ever heard that um, that he served as a uh, – well, did he serve as a deputy U.S. Marshal or a marshal? No, he was U.S. Marshal. U.S. U.S. Marshal, okay. Well, see, that that's the first I've ever heard. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people, when you – when you think of Frederick Douglass, like you say, you think of a of an abolitionist, somebody who, you know, was so well known about uh, African American history. But to know that he had served as a U.S. Marshal um, and and to serve as the first uh, African American U.S. Marshal, that uh, you know, those are things that is not taught in our history books. Uh, I, I know it wasn't taught in my generation, and and I was probably not taught in in the in the, in the generation that's coming up now. And so I think you know this conversation is uh, is 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 definitely going to be enlightening history to 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 the listeners, and and hopefully encourage uh, more people to really learn more about the service that uh, the men and women have contributed to the uh, to the marshal service. Right. Yes, and uh, I, 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 real quick, but before Art gets back in, um, one of the things that um, you, you, you mentioned, do I, did I know the number of, of uh, African American U.S. Marshals? And I do not know that number. Again, that'd be a, a really a, a, a good number. Uh, there is um, a marshal from Illinois who also serves as a chief of police in uh, the Central District of. Uh, I'm sorry, he serves as chief of police when he when he uh, stopped. When he, his term as marshal was over, his name is uh, Robert Moore. He served a chief in Jackson, Jackson, uh, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, he 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 has uh, done a lot of work on uh, black U.S. marshals, so I think he would have a lot of data on that. But the, um, the the president that appointed, I can tell you this: the president that appointed the most U.S. marshals was number forty-two, William Clinton. Uh, that were African American. I think he he, he uh, appointed. Uh, I want to say 20 or 22. I might be off a little bit. Uh, we lost some of them, including one from the um, Conrad Patillo, who was in the Eastern District of Arkansas. I posted on my Facebook page recently, actually uh, a little while ago, a um, uh, something that we used to do in the Marshall Service from our African American History Month. Celebration of 1999. It have about 17 or 18 uh, U.S. Marshals uh, from that uh, time, and included Conrad Patillo and many others. Uh, several have uh, transitioned on, but a great group of guys. Okay, okay. Um, you, you know, Art, I want to ask you this. I don't know how accurate this information is, but was Bass Reed uh, was he born in in Arkansas? Yes. Yes, okay, he was born okay. in thirty eight. So he was born. So he was born into in, into slavery. Yeah, he was a slave. Correct. He was okay. raised as a slave. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, hey, Art, I don't, we're we're going to be coming up on and taking our next break, uh, and I know you've got a lot of information to, to share. With our, with us and our listeners, and uh, but I want to remind our listeners that, you know, the calling number to the show is six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. The chat room is open. Uh, you can listen to us live on radio dot com backslash la bachelor, 
uh, if you have a, a question or a comment or if you'd like to come on the air and ask a question uh, from Art and, um, and, and Sylvester about what, uh, the topic of what we're talking about, the, uh, the history of, of blacks and the U.S. Marshals, please come on and, and uh, send a message in the chat room. Uh, but, um, you know, this is a, a great topic that, that we're discussing and a little bit different from some of the other topics that we talked about. But, guys, we're going to jump in. We're going to take this break. and we come back, we'll get back into uh, talking about the uh, service of blacks in the U.S. Marshals. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. This is Chicago-style hot dog here. I'm not feeling too good. Turns out, along with all the other bad things my cholesterol does, they say it's a risk factor for strokes. Strokes? Sheesh! Good news from National Stroke Association. Exercising, eating right, and asking your doctor about medicines that can help lower your cholesterol, like statins, may reduce the risk of a first stroke. And if you've already had a stroke, it's even more important you lower your cholesterol. Lower your chances of stroke by controlling your cholesterol. Visit stroke.org today. Finally tonight, let's meet a St. Paul, Minnesota police officer who tells CBS's... Hey, I want to welcome everyone back to You and the Law podcast show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, where we uh, are talking with our guests today about the history of black uh, U.S. deputy marshals. And we have on uh, as guest uh, Art Burton, who is, who is an author. And we also have on as a guest uh, Sylvester Jones, who is a retired assistant director for the U.S. Marshal Service. And so, guys, we're uh glad that you have been able to take some time out to come on and and talk with our uh, listeners about uh, the history of of uh, blacks in the US marshal service and and art you know we, you know Bass Reeves is probably the uh the most well-known uh deputy US marshals and all of the the research and the the books that you've written about him uh I want to ask you do you think that there's still a uh, a segment uh, maybe in the black community or just people in general that do not know a lot about Bass Reeves and what he contributed to to the Western frontier in law enforcement? Yeah, I, I think there's uh, the majority of people, they're starting to get his name out there, so people are starting to hear about him, but very few people, I think, realize the magnitude of what he did during his career, being that he worked 32 years as a deputy U.S. Marshal. You know, Hollywood always talks about U.S. Marshal, and they will talk about lawmen who went and captured criminals as U.S. Marshals, but they were not U.S. Marshals. Those were deputy U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals mm-hmm. are basically administrators who work behind, you know, a, a, a bench, and, and they administrate. Yeah. They went out and captured the criminals were deputy U.S. Marshals. But, yeah, Bass was, was, was profound, uh, the greatest lawman that I've ever come across in my lifetime in terms of what he was able to do. And being that he was a former slave, he was illiterate, so he couldn't read or write, so he would memorize his warrants. 
and he would take out as many as 30 warrants at a time, and he would always be able to pull out the warrants you asked for from memory. His memory was, was just off the charts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he escaped numerous assassination attempts. They say he arrested over 3,000, upwards of 4,000 criminals during his career. And uh, he had a you know fantastic career. Well, and I don't think a lot of people are, uh, you know, aware that, you know, Massey had, I believe, maybe uh, 10 children, five boys and five girls. So, you know, he had had a large family. And, and so, he had a, he had uh, 11 oh, 11. Okay. Okay. Yeah. He had okay. Okay. Well, and, and again, I just think there's just so much um, that, uh that it that you know to discover about Bass Reeves, and uh, so guys, we've got a a listener uh, in Charlotte um, who uh, the first black U.S. Marshals, if not who was. I think she's asking the question: uh, Who was the first black U.S. Marshal, uh, and if not, who was? And I think. Um, Art, you can probably, you know, share that information, and um, yeah. or, or or Sylvester, who was the first black. Yeah, yeah. Sylvester mentioned earlier the first U.S. marshal was Frederick Douglass, who was appointed for the District of Columbia in 1877. Now, if you talk about deputy marshals, that's that's a whole nother ball game. Uh, we do know that there was a black man named Negro Smith who in 1867 went after criminals who robbed and killed a stagecoach driver in Indian Territory in 1867. He was called Negro Smith. And many times people say Bass was the first. He wasn't the first. There was a a former Buffalo soldier who became a deputy marshal in 1872 by the name of Bynum Colbert, and he worked from 72 up to 1896 in the Indian Territory. So Bass was one of the first, but he wasn't the first deputy U.S. marshal. The first. Yeah. Okay. But so, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, Sylvester, I think, you know, so people can understand the difference between the de- a deputy U.S. marshal and a, uh, a marshal. Can, can you share with our listeners what the different, those two different titles, how they operate within the U.S. Marshal Service? Sure, absolutely, Chief Green. A, a deputy marshal is um, comes in as a frontline um, employee, have the responsibility of uh, protecting the courts. Uh, we work in, they work to protect witnesses. They move transport prisoners. Uh, we have a seize asset um, program where they uh, work to seize assets from uh, uh, narcotics dealers and others. Um, who uh, get their wealth through ill-gotten means. They, um, uh, you know, protect judges uh, in the courts, and, you know, judges have threats on them, and federal prosecutors who protect them. And a deputy marshal is, you know, he he's a sworn person commission. The, 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 the way you move up in the marshal service, you go from deputy marshal to senior deputy marshal or supervisory deputy marshal, uh, assistant chief, chief. We have, we have chief inspectors. Uh, we have um, 
uh, assistant, a chief deputy marshal, the highest, the highest civil servant. So put it like that: a deputy marshal up to a chief deputy marshal is a civil servant and not appointed um, politically. The U.S. marshal and his ninety-four of them. Uh, to include a fifth one, a, a 95th one in the, the, the uh, Superior Court. Uh, they are politically uh, appointees, and they can be deputy marshals if they have the political um, clout or know-how or connections to um, get a political appointment as a U.S. Marshal, but they have to be careful about that because once that appointment's over or the president leaves office and somebody else gets that job, you get pushed out of that job. And uh, yeah, you know you don't want to you know be a be make Marshall too soon. Put it like that. So you can go back. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's that's the difference. You know, a U.S. Marshals, uh, political appointed, they're the only ones with the gold star. Deputy U.S. Marshal, civil service, up to chief deputy, silver star, and that's uh, I guess the name. One of the, the uh, uh, Art Burton, he's black gun, silver star. So talking about that silver star. <laughs> well, well, and guys, and I think a lot of people are familiar with the movie The Fugitive and 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 the character that that Tommy Lee Jones played as the the deputy U.S. marshal. And so, you know, I think you know everybody has seen the movie The Fugitive. The Fugitive, and so I think a lot of people relate uh, to U.S. marshals to the movie. Uh, the fugitive, but there was also prior to that there was a, uh, uh, I believe, uh, another uh, uh, series that was ba- the show that was called The Fugitive that that was back maybe in the the late sixties, early seventies. Right. So, yeah, so, let me, yeah, yeah. that was about a doctor who didn't kill his wife, and the deputy U.S. marshal was on his trail. Was on his tail, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Hey, hey, Virgil, let me share a quick story with you in the audience. When I was a deputy U.S. marshal, I mentioned to you that I was pretty good fugitive guy. That's why my book uh, is titled "Hunting Criminals to Hide Them." Because in the back end of my career in witness protection for nine years, my job was to make sure we hit them well. Um, mm-hmm. I, during the, when they filmed the movie, the first movie, The Fugitive, of course, it was filmed a lot in Chicago. So uh, myself and exactly. my uh, fugitive partner, my fugitive partner, his name is uh, Herman Brewer. I can call his name out. Um, we were assigned to ride with uh, with uh, Joe Pantoliano. He sat in our back seat. He was the right hand man to Tommy Jones and the fugitive. And so oh, okay. he would see me. Yeah, this is a true story. I, I mentioned in my book too. So he saw me how I was doing my business. I had my nine millimeter on the side. And I had a 38 in a shoulder holster. He said, he said well, why do you do that? And I explained to him that, hey, that, that, that the 38, is, that's, the, that's, that's, um, that's the backup one if I need it. And so I, I said, but I'm a, my go-to is, is that 9 millimeter. So he said, hey, I'm going to play that in a movie. And he played it in both of them, The Fugitive and then uh, the, the, the sequel to it, uh, U.S. Marshals, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think a lot of people – when you talk about uh, Joe, uh, was it Palinato? Uh, Ponte, he was uh, Joe Ponte, Ponte. Yeah, you got you know. I, I had it off. It was Joe Pontigliano or something like that. Uh, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He's a yeah. noted so he, actor, a very noted actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is. He, he kind of played the the uh, the right hand man to to the character uh, that uh, 
Tommy Lee Jones played as Samuel Samuel Gerard. You know, he he was that that hard nosed deputy U.S. marshal who he was going to get his man, and I think that's what a lot of people uh, relate to the U.S. marshals as. If the U.S. Marshals want you, they're going to find you. They're going to get you. So you can't really hide from from the uh, deputy U.S. Marshals. So, so Virgil, that that yeah yeah all right. I, yeah, I would like to add uh, during Reconstruction, uh, black deputy U.S. Marshals served east of the Mississippi River, and the first one I remember dying in in the line of duty was around 1875 in Cleveland. There was a black deputy U.S. Marshal was killed in the line of duty. Hmm. Uh, so, oh, okay. you know, okay. I don't know how many black deputies east of Mississippi during the 19th century, but they did have some in the urban areas, uh, but I'm not sure how many. Now, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong, Art, I, well, Bass Reeves was the first black U.S. Uh, marshal uh, in the west of the Mississippi. Wrong. Is that wrong? Okay, okay. That's yeah, yeah. I just mentioned okay. there was a black day in 1867. They called it yeah, Negro in 1860. Smith. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. right. You're right. Exactly. Bass started in yeah. 1875. Okay. And Bynum started. Okay. I know started in 72, and he was the ex-Buffalo soldier. Okay. But also, so too, there was a, there was a there was a deputy in 1890s in the Wyoming territory who was black, named Frank Garrard. And he caught uh, bank robbers and stagecoach robbers and things. He was pretty noted. Oh, okay. So, uh, Sylvester, with the with the blacks who have served at, at, in the U.S. Marshals, whether you know a deputy U.S. Marshal, uh, is it something that a lot of people aren't aware about as far as the the origin and the, and the history of blacks who have served? In in the U.S. Marshal Service, uh, you know, like I said, everybody knows about Bass Reeves, but uh, how how does the U.S. Marshals uh, Service look at the history of African Americans who have served? Is that something is, that is is how does that history? How do they uh, uh, share that history uh, within the agency itself? I, I, I think that the, uh, the, you know, and I served almost 27 years with the agency. Uh, I guess I retired a little bit before Art since he retired in 2015. I retired in 2000 and, um, January 2014, but to run for sheriff in my county. However, getting to your question, I think the marshal service should do, I think they can do a better job of, uh, you know, highlighting the history. They 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 have, they. They do some, and they have, they have a Black History Month program every February where they do kind of talk about it and have some uh, some history about the uh, and, and art has been in, uh, has been um, uh, invited and has spoken at some of the programs to uh, kind of highlight the history and, and, and art was the one that told me and many others in the Marshall Service about Bass Reeves. We don't you know we don't you know learn nothing about Bass. I didn't learn nothing about it until I, I ran across. Uh, uh, Art Burton, and so uh, yeah. you know he he he, he woke us uh, a bunch of us up on that. But one of the things I will share uh, with you and the audience is hey, the, hey, the, Sylvester, you go to commercial. 
Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So let's take this break, and once we when we come back, we'll get back in, into the topic of what you're uh, getting ready to talk about. And we've got a couple of questions from 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 some of our listeners. But you're listening to you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. If you're an African American man, you need to know about oral cancer. Oral cancer is more common in African American men than in any other group in the U.S. If you have a sore or lump in your mouth that doesn't go away after two weeks. See a doctor or a dentist. Most often, these symptoms don't mean cancer, but it's important to get them checked. If you do have oral cancer, it can be treated more successfully if it's caught early. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. Who is Bass Reeves? Well, he's the real Lone Ranger. I think he needed to be accepted a long time ago in, in our history. The, f- the fact that he's gone unrecognized this far is astounding to me. We've honored George Washington Carver. Uh, we've honored Martin Luther King. But where's Bess Reeves? He's almost all but forgotten. What's amazing is that the story with Bass Reeves is the fact that for my entire life, I thought the Lone Ranger was white. When Danica approached me about this project and told me that he, the real Lone Ranger, Bass Reeves, was actually African-American, not only was that a stunning revelation, but it surprised me the fact that how come no one's teaching this in school? How come we're not learning about this on the news or the History Channel, Discovery Channel? Well, hey, we want to welcome everyone back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network, uh, where today we are talking about the history of the black U.S. Deputy Marshals, and we have on uh, two guests, uh, Art Burton, who is an author, uh, well-known about his research with Bass Reeves, and we also have on, uh, as a guest, uh, Sylvester Jones, who is a retired assistant director with the U.S. Marshals uh, Service. And so we are uh, talking about the the history of U.S. Marshals and and guys, we've got um, several questions. And uh, Johnny Kentucky uh, is asking that the number of black U.S. marshals, uh, he said, was steady from 1877 to 1930. Uh, were more blacks where more where more blacks voted Republican, and it seemed that the party believed in employing more blacks as U.S. marshals. Uh, his question is, is there a direct connection in the deadline of uh, marshals after that era as more blacks uh, uh, start voting Democrat? And, and Art, you may, you, you may have uh, some information about that. Well, uh, the information I got is that uh, the federal government pretty much uh, stopped hiring uh, blacks east of the Mississippi River after Reconstruction ended. You would find some blacks, uh, especially in the Indian Oklahoma Territory, uh, as deputy U.S. Marshals. And then, as I mentioned, there was, I know of at least one was in the Wyoming Territory. Uh, but, yeah, the Republicans were much more uh, lenient. The, the Democrats were much more conservative. And uh, the Democratic uh, position was very racist actually in the 19th century and the early 20th century. So, uh, but the Democrats, uh, the Republicans uh, gave up uh, 
on on a lot of of the things they were trying to do with the Hayes, uh, you know, compromise in 1877 when he became president. It was it was interesting. He 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 made Frederick Douglass a U.S. Marshal from District of Columbia, but they took the troops out of the South that was protecting black people uh, with the Hayes Compromise, uh, and uh, so you know it's it from from uh, after that happened, and then Oklahoma became a state in 1907. There was upwards of 50 black deputy U.S. Marshals in Oklahoma Indian Territory up till 1907 and then after statehood there was none and i don't think there was any uh, principal number of black deputy u.s marshals until the 1960s and from what i can gather the majority were hired in the district of columbia uh where they did the work they didn't have a uh, sheriff's department and so they hired a number of black deputy marshals in the 60s and they did the work that the sheriff's a department would do in a regular county scenario. And they had a few uh, blacks they hired in New York City in the 60s, but that, you know, it, it was it was, it was was really nothing until the 1960s. Okay. Now, Sylvester, you, you, uh, as we were getting ready to go into break, you were uh, sharing with us about uh, the, that you were actually, you know, had some uh, – Played a role in in the movie that they filmed in Chicago with the, with the fugitive, and we were talking about one of the cast members in the show, and and I, and I often wondered, you know, because I do know when those type of shows are are being made that they they they, they go to law enforcement law enforcement for some type of consulting, and and so oftentimes law enforcement may even play a role in the movie as an extra, so. Um, that that was interesting to hear your uh, you shared the story about uh, uh, having some direct contact with some of those cast members in in that uh, movie uh, uh, The Fugitive. Yeah, it was Joe Pantoliano, and uh, he's been in a lot of movies. And like I said, he um, when you see him and whenever you watch that movie, he's got he got his he got his uh, semi-auto on his side, and he got a I like the 38 or something on the shoulder rig. He he took that right from me, and he told me he was going to do it. Um, but it's uh, you, you mentioned something when, when you get as law enforcement, and this is what I was told back in the day. If you do get cast as an extra uh, in a movie, you can't play no one. You can't play an officer from your agency. So, for example, uh, I got selected for to play a role with Yape Koto in. Um, uh, the name of the movie with uh, Charles Grodin and Bob De Niro. Where Bob De Niro was a bounty hunter, and uh, Charles Grodin he, he was after him for a bounty. And uh, Yapikota was with the FBI, so I got picked to play the guy that was next to uh, Yapikota in the whole movie. But I had a supervisor that blocked me from that. But you cannot, uh, as I understand it, if, if you with the now, agency, you can't play the role in that agency. So, in other words, I couldn't play a deputy marshal. But what and I was going yeah. to say to you real quick, real quick, is you, you asked about a little bit of history that may not be out there, um, is the, uh, the marshal service as a whole, black and white, played a major role in, in civil rights, uh, protecting Ruby Bridges when she uh, desegregated schools in, uh, in New Orleans. And... Um, 
uh, major case uh, was the University of Mississippi with uh, James Meredith, who I think uh, is still living and was a lawyer. He the first black student to uh, desegregate University of Mississippi. Marshall Service protected him. And there's a noted African-American um, deputy marshal who recently passed, who I believe was, was worked, worked out there. His name was uh, Kurt Bowden, who uh, was from the District of Columbia and served many, many, many years, and I mentioned to many. And I got a chance to know him and, and to, you know, uh, be a friend of his and look up to him. Uh, he was actually out there, I believe. And so there's, there's, that's some history that maybe uh, people don't know about. Okay, okay. Well, and you know, guys, and, and I share with you and our listeners that, um, you know, when we just, uh, when it was brought to my attention when I served as a police chief in, in Bowley, Oklahoma, which is located in, in Ofuskie County, which is predominantly uh, uh, Creek uh, territory, that in 1905, uh, when the town of Bowley was established, that the first town marshal, uh, name was bad. His name was uh, W. R. Dick Shaver, and he also served uh, as a deputy U.S. marshal. And he was killed in the line of duty. Uh, uh, I guess trying to arrest some some horse thieves. And a hundred years later, um, our um, individual who was over our law enforcement memorial uh, came to me and said, "Hey, do you know anything about W. R. Dick Shaver?" and had no clue. Uh, I think he had, uh, Art Burton had, had even uh, talked to this gentleman. His name is Dennis Lippy. Um, and uh, so W.R. Dick Saver's name was added to the to the National Law Enforcement Memorial in D.C. And we had the uh, pleasure of uh, uh, his name uh, inviting his family to where his name was added to the Oklahoma Law Enforcement Memorial. And uh, we discovered that there was a lot of family spread out uh, across the, the country, a lot, some here in Oklahoma and, and a lot out in California. But uh, when I reached out to the Marshal Service um, and asked them, you know, would they uh, participate in the – we ended up uh, naming a stretch of Highway 62 in Bowley after W.R. Dick Shaver, which – he is the first African-American uh, law enforcement officer that has had a highway dedicated in his name. And so it was it was an honor to be a part of that and to really uh, have a lot to do with, with that coming about. The uh, U.S. Marshal for the uh, Western, I mean, the Eastern District of Oklahoma, he came and uh, just, it, just really surprising that something had happened 100 years ago and that the marshal service took the time to come out and honor uh this this uh this man uh meant a lot to me and definitely meant a lot to the family so uh, he ended up giving the, the family some some coins so uh they were definitely um uh pleased with how the u.s marshal service embraced them especially with somebody who had passed away 100 years ago yeah and 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 art you know you know we we've talked over the years about it, and there's a lot that a lot of people really don't know about w r dick shaver's really uh no family pictures of him, nobody really knows what he looks like, 
And so there's a lot that's unknown about who he is um, and, and uh, how what he contributed to um, to law enforcement in, in that part of, the, of Oklahoma. Yes, yeah, Shaver was one of the deputies that worked for the hanging judge, Judge Isaac Parker in Parker. Fort Smith, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And so, and, 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 huh? yeah, and, and not to, and not to, not to interrupt you, Art, but I think a lot of people are not even aware that, you know, of the museum that's in uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, that's uh, uh, where there's a horse in a in a in a statue that's uh, uh, depicted of the uh, Bass Reeves. Yeah, right. Nice yeah, yes. they have a, a brand new U.S. Marshals Museum that's opening up, uh, grand opening next year. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a spot to see. Yeah, and I know they they had some. Yeah, go ahead, Sylvester. No, I was going to say I was going to try to mention that if we had time about the museum uh, opening. I know they had they had was supposed to open a few years back, but. They, they, I know fundraising and, and, and getting everything in order had been, had been uh, you know, somewhat difficult, but I was going to mention that. I haven't been out there, but I look forward to going. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and guys, we're, you know, time uh, definitely uh, flies by when you're having a good conversation uh, about, you know, just history in general with, 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 uh, with, with blacks who served in law enforcement and, and, you know, just to talk about the service that uh, African-American men and women have served in the U.S. Marshal Service is something that doesn't get a lot of attention. But, uh, Art, there are several things that's, that's getting ready to to come up. Uh, if you would like to share uh, some things that's getting ready to – that you're involved with and some other people are involved with uh, that – it's going to be taking place here in Oklahoma, and I and I believe maybe in uh, in, in other parts of the of the country. Uh, well, for for sure, the Bass Reeves uh, Western History Conference is coming up uh, this weekend in uh, Muskogee, Oklahoma, and uh, they always have a, a you know a very good program there. And uh, so, you know, I, I really, if anybody want to check out. Uh, a good program on bass reeves to check out that uh, history conference. It runs both uh, Friday and Saturday. And that's this weekend in Muskogee, Oklahoma? That's, yeah, that's this weekend in Muskogee, correct. Okay, okay. All right, and and you're going to be in, uh, in Arcadia, Oklahoma at the Red Barn. Uh, if, if people are familiar with, Route sixty, Route sixty six, and uh, the Red Barn. You're going to be at this famous barn talking uh, about Bass Reeves, uh, and that's going to be coming up what next week? Right. That that'll be uh, Thursday after this Thursday. Correct. Okay. Okay. All right. And, and so, what is the uh, the? How did that come about? Uh, you. Coming to Oklahoma to to, to talk about uh, Bass Reeves well, at the well, at the Red Bull. Well, Barn. every time every time I, I get to Oklahoma, I try to make a few stops around the state and and talk about uh, you know the history as as, as much as I can. So uh, I'll be making a few stops in the, in the state uh, 
this week coming up. Okay. All right. Well, I'll definitely uh, be uh, coming to meet you when you get to to Arcadia, where you know you've got uh, some family from, and it's just a, right. a little little town right outside of Oklahoma City, on the other side of, of Edmond, Oklahoma. So, uh, so Mr. Jones, uh, before we uh, have to cut it short, uh, kind of tell our listeners, uh, you know, about your book and how they can uh, how they can find your book and and uh, uh, where they can learn more about the, the book that you've written. Right. Well, real, uh, yeah, no, we're closing. So, uh, yeah, again, the, my, my book is uh, Hunting Criminals to Hide Them, My Journey to One with the U.S. Marshal Service, uh, self-published with, um, I can't even remember the publisher right now, but the uh, but you can get it on uh, on all in the major uh, networks, Amazon and so forth, and also through me, and uh, my email is uh, S-A- J O N E S one five zero one at gmail dot com, uh, and and uh, you can uh, send a note to me there, and I will send a signed copy. Uh, we can you know work it out. Um, but I uh, again, Chief uh, Green, uh, thank you for having me, and uh, this was uh, this was really good, and uh, always a pleasure to to uh, uh, be on a any any panel or committee with Art Burton. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, Art Art definitely makes us all look good because he he has so much history and can tell so many stories about uh about uh blacks who uh served in, in law enforcement, especially in um in the western frontier and, and and you know, he'll definitely tell people, you know, the long range there was a long ranger and that long ranger was, was Bass Reeves and so uh, you, you know, uh, you, you definitely bring a lot of uh, information, uh, Art, and we definitely appreciate you guys for taking the time to, to come on and talk about uh, the right. blacks in the U.S. Marshal Service. We could use some of uh, Sylvester's uh, law enforcement skills here in Chicago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, guys. It, it, and I know, Sylvester, you you ran you ran for sheriff, and so you you you've been in law enforcement, and and, and you 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 got a uh, a lot of uh, other information to share about uh, things that's going on with in in the policing industry. So uh, we're we're going to definitely reach out to you and get you to come back on the podcast show and talk a little bit more about um, you know what's going on in the world of uh, policing. But, but, guys, it's definitely been a pleasure and an honor to have you both uh, come on our uh, podcast show, you and the Law Podcast Show. We want to remind you that if you miss any parts of the podcast show, uh, you can go back and listen to the uh, podcast show uh, uh, at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. at uh, the at blogtalkradio.com backslash L.A. Bachelor. And, uh, uh, and you also can follow us on Facebook at You and the Law One. But again, guys, thank you for tuning in to You and the Law. But you've been listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.